the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, welcome back as we head into Hour 3, Politics and Culture. No one to do that uh, with better than Dr. Tevi Choi. He bridges, uh, he bridges those waters uh, through his, the entirety of his profession. He is a uh, former Deputy Secretary of Health and Human Services. He is a presidential historian and author and uh, writes a lot on the culture, uh, everywhere from uh, the Wall Street Journal to, uh, to uh, the Commentary Magazine. His most recent book, Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. It's a great uh, presidential uh, history uh, from Truman to Trump. And we visit with Tevi frequently, but always towards the end of the year to do some cultural political roundups. Tevi, long intro. Sorry. How are you, sir? I'm doing great, and I'm really looking forward to this. I've been listening to the origin stories on the radio. I've heard some great ones with uh, Wilford Riley. You did one. Yeah. Charles Kessler, yeah. the bar teacher. Yeah. And, uh, they're, they're terrific, Seth, and I really appreciate what you do. Well, thank you. I, I you. Um, let's do yours uh, a little bit, uh, if you don't mind, uh, as, as, as long as you raised it. I'm glad you did. Um, you have, uh, you know, some of these origin stories of the intellectual conservatives we have on our show – some of them are people who became conservative. Some of them were conservative kind of from the beginning. Uh, where do you fall into uh, – what category do you fall into, and how did you know you were a conservative if you were not a convert? That's a great question, and I'm not even sure you and I have ever discussed this. No, I don't think we have. Conversations. Yeah. But I, I grew up – you knew my parents, Yep. and they were both teachers in New York City, both part of the union. So and they always pulled the lever for Democrats. The one time I remember they didn't vote for a Democrat when I was growing up was they couldn't handle voting for McGovern in '72, uh-huh. but they didn't vote for Nixon either. Uh-huh. And they made up for it by voting Democrat all up and down the rest of the ticket. I was so, going to uh, say probably not George Wallace. <laughs> right, right. Okay, all right. I just think they didn't pull the ticket for either of them. Yeah. The lever for either. Yeah. yeah. So that, that's the home I grew up in. However, if you listened to them, the things they talked about sounded to me conservative. They talked about crime, and they talked about welfare, and they talked about graffiti, and and they talked about how terrible the Soviet Union was. They were supporters of Israel. And so all those things really would lead one to be conservative, but they considered themselves Democrats. And by the way, they they did evolve over time, but long after I, I evolved. And so I had these conservative predispositions, but again, growing up in a Democratic household in 1984, I was still a teenager, and I worked for the Reagan campaign in a very junior volunteer capacity. So I I liked Reagan, but I wouldn't call myself intellectually-minded conservative at that point. What really changed for me was in 1987-88, I went to the London School of Economics for junior year abroad. And this was a time when Reagan was turning America around, and Margaret Thatcher was turning England around, and you had all these privileged, entitled kids at the London School of Economics who were driving their their father's fancy MGBs or Spiders. I mean, they drove these great sports cars. They had great clothes. And they could not have been more left-wing. They hated America. They hated Israel. They hated England. They hated Margaret Thatcher. And it just didn't seem to make any sense to me. And so it was really that year that 
made me realize that I am of a conservative predisposition, and I started to read a lot more in the conservative world. In, in the LSE library, I remember discovering the, this name that I'd never heard before of Irving Kristol. And I read something so funny by him. It was actually uh, Charles Krauthammer, who I also didn't know at the time, quoting Irving Kristol, saying that the Organization of American States is just like the United Nations, except we only get denounced in three languages, <laughs> thereby saving translator fees. That's how you stumbled on Irving Kristol. That is how I came across the name Irving Kristol, and he's a hero of mine to this day, as you know. Yeah. So that really got me thinking and then started me on my journey. And then I moved to Washington after I graduated college. My first job, is, and this part you know, was at the American Enterprise Institute. And I saw people like Irving Kristol and Ben Wattenberg, who was my boss and mentor, and Judge Borg and Gene Kirkpatrick, and I really admired them. And I said, boy, I want to be like these people. You know, I've known you 30 years, I think, or so, and it's did, – did, did you know, did I know, did we either of us know that we both spent our junior year abroad at LSE? Embarrassingly, no. I don't think we knew that about each other. <laughs> we had to go on the radio for all of Phoenix and the rest of the country. Oh, my here. goodness gracious. Yeah. yeah. Uh, how funny. Because when I was a junior there, that's when I was just becoming conservative. I had just started – I took with me a whole bunch of uh, – I just recently had had met Harry Jaffa, and I took with me a whole bunch of his essays to read while I was there. And uh, I spent the time in the library reading Leo Strauss and Harry Jaffa. You spent time at the LSE library, I assume, reading commentary back issues and things like that. Yeah. How? Um, And also graduate school, I read a lot of old issues and commentary. Of course, of course. Fascinating. And... The, the the phrase origin story, I was just thinking about it out loud. You know, it seems like it's become popular over the last year or so, almost as, it's, as if it's a neologism. But it isn't really, is it? Well, it comes from comic books. Okay. And all the comics, you know, Batman has his origin and that his parents were murdered. Yeah. And Superman, Krypton blew up. And so they all have these origin stories. And it's how you know who the hero is and what their motivation is and what their powers are. So it, it all comes from comic books. At the risk of humanizing you too much, I thought you were going to say you became a conservative because of a story you told me about summer camp and how you hated it, (laughs) overnight summer camp. That is true. I did go to a summer camp that had a socialist inclination, and the the head of the movement uh, was going on about how wonderful socialism was. And this, I was even younger than their early team, and I said, I'm not a socialist, and I like capitalism, and... And he, not, I don't think I was that informed when I said it, although I was correct. Also, but, no uh, freedom, and, and the right? the head of the movement said, well, then you don't belong here. Also, no and, freedom, right? Everything right. was regimented, which right. which yeah. kind of helped teach me a little bit about communism when I was at LSC. We took a break. I don't know if you did anything like this and traveled uh, through, um, through Scotland and stuff like that, uh, a few of us, and we stayed at youth hostels. And I never saw anything so Maoist in my life <laughs> uh, uh, to leave. You know, you could you paid you paid, uh, you know, pounds on the you know, pennies on the pound. Yeah. Tuppence on the on the pound. I suppose the expression was you paid very little to stay at these youth hostels. But to leave, you had to, you know, kind of keep house or clean up a little bit. And I remember this one week. None of us could leave until we cleaned the kitchen floor. 
and we were like the 20th people in a row to clean the kitchen floor. The floor did not need cleaning, but the price to leave was cleaning the kitchen floor. You could have eaten on it 18 versions before we left. And, <laughs> but, and I thought, okay, now I understand Maoism and the, yeah, and the story of Milton, Milton Friedman and the spoons, you know? Yeah. You make another interesting point that had not dawned on me in talking to others about their origin stories, and now it's maybe becoming uh, a little more clear. Do we become the kind of conservative that we first oriented ourselves to in their scholarship? So, you know, I'm probably more of a, uh, of a, of a West Coast Straussian type conservative because I was exposed to conservatism through Harry Jaffa. And you're maybe more of a conservative of the Irving Crystal uh, uh, line and Charles Krauthammer line because you started reading them. I wonder if there's something to it. It might. It just might require more examination or your next book. Yeah, it's an interesting question. Look, in those years, I was reading widely yeah. all types of different strains of conservatism. And as you know, I studied at the Claremont Institute, yeah. the Princeton yeah. Fellowship there. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, as most uh, 18-year-olds do, had some libertarian leanings. And I remember my friends at the American Enterprise Institute would mock me, and they'd say, you're a neo-Straussian libertarian. Yeah, sure. Because <laughs> you have influences from all three worlds. So Interesting. Interesting. But I, I would say, if, if I could continue on the Yeah, origin, yeah, yeah, yeah. There was an interesting point, and I think uh, young people who are listening should, should perk up at this point, because when I looked around at these folks at AI whom I so admired, I said, there's got to be a path. How do I get to be like them? Right. And I tried to isolate the things that they had done in their career so that I could be more like them. And what I found when I looked at the panoply of these, these folks whom I admired, they had three things. They almost always had a graduate degree. Irving Crystal is an exception, but he did do some graduate work. They had a graduate degree, they had some kind of senior government service, and they all wrote a well-received Booker article article that got them attention. They had a big article that got them attention, yeah. Book or article. Book or article. Uh, And I said, I'm going to try and do those things. So I went to get a Ph.D. at the University of Texas at Austin, and you know we spent time together there. Yeah. And I wrote a dissertation that I thought I could publish as a book, which I did, on intellectuals in the American presidency. Right. It was the first of my books. And then I also went and I worked in government. As you know, I worked in the House for the Republican leadership. Then I worked for the Senate for Senator John Ashcroft. And then I started working in the Bush administration in multiple jobs yeah. at the Department of Labor, yeah. at the Bush campaign, at the White House in a senior role, yeah. and then eventually as Deputy Secretary of HHS. It's a great story, and it's a great path. Um, it's it's. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I'm glad we got to do that. Um, I got to And I would just say one quick thing to young people. My path was my path. I identified what I wanted to do and what the people who I admired had done. But you can do this in any field. Let's say you want to be the CFO of a corporation or you want to work in the front office of a baseball team. Look at what people who are 20 years ahead of you down the road, what they have done to get there, and then try and find ways to accomplish those things or, or check those boxes. Yep. Wordsworth said, what we have loved, others will love, but we must teach them how. Tevi Troy and I'll be right back on Movies and Books. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Presidential and cultural historian Tevi Troy is with us. We talk about a lot of things throughout the course of the year, Tevi and I do, but one thing we always do in December is a year roundup of movies and books. I thought we might start 
with movies, uh, movie recommendations or greatest movies of the year. You know, Tevi, um, <laughs> I don't know. You live on the East Coast. You grew up in New York. Has the New York Times ever been more out of touch? But before you answer that, let me let me just let me let me preface it this way. They put out their 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 movie reviewer, A.O. Scott, put out the list, his top 10 list of best movies. Uh, I had heard of zero of them. Uh, they are Nope, Neptune Frost, Mr. Bachman and His Class, After Sun, No Bears, Tar, Lost Illusions, Flux Gourmet, All the Beauty and Bloodshed, Down with the King. Now, we can talk about that in a minute, but that question I, 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 I begged – it seems increasingly the New York Times is out of touch with America. Maybe it was always thus. Is it worse now than ever? It is worse. I will say that I have long read the New York Times best movies of the year list, and I've noticed a increasing divergence between what I watch and what they recommend. Yeah, There used to be a time, I would always say there are some movies that I didn't watch and that they were clearly part of their political agenda, but now it seems to be all of the movies. They recommend, and I just I just don't get my recommendations from them anymore. Do you have a couple or more than a couple recommendations of movies that came out this year? I have maybe one uh, that that was really good, but I, I you tell me what what do you got from movies this year? So I really like that movie Vengeance, which I recommended to you, yeah. B.J. Novak, about a blue state elitist who goes to Texas and has all these preconceptions about what Texans are like, and he thinks they're all ignorant and they don't read. And he's surprised to find that they, they read Chekhov and they're aware of things. And there's one scene where he tries to explain what a writer is, and the person says, of course I know what a writer is, you condescending, blah, blah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Word. Uh, so um, I, I thought that, that was a fun movie. And the guy is obviously of the left. Mm-hmm. But he, I think he was fair in the way he depicted both sides. So I, I do that too. Was a good movie. I do too. A very, um, really heartwarming um, and special movie I thought was Thirteen Lives, about the Thai children who are caught in a cave and how the divers try to rescue them. And they, um, and, and this is actually a pro-Western movie in that it was uh, the, the Thai Navy SEALs don't know how to do the specific cave diving that has to be done, and they have to import these British divers who come in and they do some very innovative things that I don't want to spoil in order to get, get to try and get the kids out. I don't want to say if they, they make it out or not. So uh, th- those I thought were terrific movies. I also, I had a lot of fun with the movie Bullet Train. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, it, it's not high quality, but you know, I like my action movies. Yep. And I thought that was the, uh, the best action movie. Fascinating. Fascinating. You know, it's um, uh, Top Gun was really the only movie I think I saw. Oh, I forgot. Top Gun was terrific. Yeah, it was terrific. And I thought it was the only movie I had seen. I think it's the only movie I saw in a theater this year. I saw two of those other movies on TV, the B.J. Novak and the uh, Thai rescue movie. I saw them on cable or on, uh, you know, on video on demand. And, you know, it dawns on me. I, I have done this from time to time. It's amazing what Hollywood has become and the decline of Hollywood itself. You take a look at what they could do in a single year in the 1960s, Tevi. Uh, I like to do the Academy Awards from 1963, but you could do an equal 64, 65, 66. In one year, this is what Hollywood would do. First of all, the Academy Awards were hosted by Frank Sinatra. Uh, Already great. The following year, they were hosted by Jack Lemmon. I mean, you can do, do this on and on. But in that one year, one year, you get Lawrence of Arabia, The Longest Day, Music Man, To Kill a Mockingbird, Mutiny on the Bounty, Divorce Italian Style, Did I Say the Miracle Worker, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, Long Day's Journey into Tonight, and Tonight, 
Uh, did I say Lawrence of Arabia? I mean, incredible. Each one a massive classic blockbuster. That's one year. Now Tom Cruise kind of has to finance his own thing to get one blockbuster with a lot of problems. If I that, if, if that, if you get that, the twenty twenty one Oscar winners, yeah, or Oscar nominees, yeah. Most people listening will not have heard of them or seen them or think that they line up anywhere as great as those 10 that you mentioned. Right, right. It's just, it's really a sad decline in the culture. So it takes me back to the New York Times for a moment. We have this vaunted or venerated view of the New York Times. And had, had. Thank you. Uh, Yeah, had, I guess. I still, my audience is probably, the audience here is probably tired of me talking about it, but I can't stop talking about it. You saw this. Did you see this um, uh, Monk debate, M-U-N-K debate with Malcolm Gladwell and Michelle Goldberg versus Douglas Murray? And uh, Not only did I see it, but I saw it thanks to you oh, okay. on your recommendation. So Michelle Goldberg, who's been everything at the New York Times, I, I mean, she talks no better than an eighth, talks and debates no better than an eighth grade. These are supposed to be elite, smart, cultural, culturally literate people. Uh, the sentence, I mean... I, she she wouldn't get it. She would not get a B in eighth grade rhetoric. I would say she's been everything at the New York Times except interesting. Okay, okay, <laughs> okay. But that's that's who this culture is supposed to venerate, honor, respect, doff our hats to, and say, oh, that's those are the smart people. They're not smart people. That, yeah. There was a question mark at the end. Of that. <laughs> no, it, it, I only paused because you reminded me of this terrific piece that Barton Swain. Oh yeah. In the mm-hmm. Wall Street Journal yep. this weekend that everyone must read. I hope you will post it with mm-hmm. the show notes. Mm-hmm. And it talks about how the Democrats are the party of the so-called smart people. And because they are the party of the second smart, of the so-called smart people, they never second-guess themselves. There's uh-huh. no self-assessment. There's no move for improvement. You know, when the Republicans lose an election, they do autopsies and they say, how can we rethink it? What do we want to do differently? And how are we going to change ourselves? And the Democrats they say, oh, well, you know, they cheated, and uh, that's it. Now, I understand there was some of that in 2020 with the Republicans, but there was also a big internal debate within the Republican Party about how to change ideologically going on right now. Yeah. And that's happened in multiple election cycles. You know, they, you know, I have that old line about lose an election, gain a think tank. Yeah. And I think it is more true on the Republican side than on the Democratic side. Well, it got me my first job in Washington, that yeah, think Power tank, and uh, Power America, which you were instrumental in, in, in me getting. Right. Uh, and that, that happened in the wake of Bush's that's right. 92 election law. That's right. So uh, uh, Bush's drug czar, his secretary of housing and urban development, nabbed Reagan's old uh, ambassador to the U.N., and they created Empower America. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Lose an election. And I guess you see that with the America First Institutes and stuff like that, too, with the uh, in, in the wake of 2020. Oh, yeah, an American conference. I mean, there, there are a whole yeah, bunch of yeah, new things. Thanks, yeah, that goes on and on. Do the uh, – I'm just wondering hey, – I must say, I'm actually wearing a sweatshirt um, for free off the uh, Freedom and Equal Opportunity um, think tank that uh, is set up by Avik Roy. So I, I wouldn't want to neglect the actual sweatshirt I'm wearing at the moment. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, I'm just thinking uh, – maybe pick this up on the other side of the break. I want to talk about books uh, of the year, but I also want to talk about – those we lost uh, this year, which is you always do an end of year uh, pantheon of conservatives who who passed away over the course of the year. And when I called you this morning, I said, how bad was this year? I think I think I heard in your voice 
the sound that it might have, the, the worst sound I've heard since we've been doing this going on about four or five years now, Tevi. Maybe we pick up with that. But I want to ask you when we come back also, if, if, if these autopsies that the Republican Party do, does, if the autopsies ever really, if they materialize into subsequent victories, if they do what they're, if they accomplish what they're meant to do, maybe we pick up on that and then get into, uh, get into the RIPs for the uh, for the year 2022. I'm Seth Leibson. He is Tevi Troy, author of many books, uh, including Fight House, his most recent one, uh, which I can't recommend highly enough. Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. We'll be right back. Dr. Tevi Troy is our guest, author of several books, Shall We Wake the President, uh, What Jefferson Read, Ike Watched, and Obama Tweeted, Intellectuals in the American Presidency, Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. Uh, Tevi, I don't know if it was an unfair question, but you think about these autopsies uh, that the Republicans do after election losses. You've been in uh, in 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 those circles for uh, several decades. Have any of them yielded great or noticeable fruit, or does well, I, or I does time say, kind of just soothe over and the campaigns kind of become what the campaigns need to be in the subsequent elections? No, I, I would say that the one that you were involved with, where the development of Empower America, yeah. and the project for the Republican Future, yeah. after 1992, the project for the Republican Future became the weekly standard. I know it's no longer with us, but for a time it was an important conservative voice. Right. And some of the key voices in the George W. Bush administration came out of that very think tank. Yeah, that's fair. People like Pete Wehner yeah. and Mike Gerson, whom yeah. we lost this year. Yeah. So uh, I, I think that they, they actually can have a big impact, and they, and they can change things, and I think they're important. Now, the... Uh, post-Romney autopsy. That's the one I, I had in my mind. For some reason, that made a lot of right. news, I guess. I don't know right. why. I, I don't think that one did much good, yeah. because I think they misdiagnosed the problem. Yeah, I mean, that's it. As you know, I supported Mitt Romney. I hoped he would win in 2012. Uh, but I think part of his problem was he couldn't connect to the conservative base. I mean, when he went to CPAC and said that he's severely conservative, yeah. no one who's actually conservative would use the modifier conservative severely before the word conservative. Or had ever heard it before, probably. <laughs> it's an expression no one had ever heard before. How are you? Yeah. I don't know. Maybe in liberal country clubs. Yeah, maybe. You know, right, 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 right. But, but right. nobody who's trying to right. appeal to conservatives right. right. severely right. right. So I think he had a problem connecting to the conservative base. And um, I think we also saw in the debate against Obama, the first one, he was terrific. And the second one, he, I don't know, it looks like, it was like he took his foot off the gas. And so uh, I, I think there were some candidate problems in, in 2012 that uh, caused the, some of the challenges. Um, I think we are going through this right now. Yeah, yeah. So I think the jury's still out. Yeah. I mean, I, I know, you know we don't win every election, but if you look at it, some of these things have actually borne fruit. Yeah. And you just never know which they are. So it is worth doing the process of intellectual and political discovery to pursue what the agenda should be for the next election. And one thing that I'm going to be really harping on in this next cycle, I'm going to write a long article about this, and I'll happily come talk about it if you'll invite me, is about platforms, how important party platforms are, because they tell you what the party stands for. Mm -hmm. And one of my bosses in the White House, an African-American fellow, I asked him how he became Republican. He said in 1980, he asked his uncle whether he was Republican or Democrat. His uncle gave him the Democrat and Republican platforms, ripped the front page of off of each, so he didn't know which was which party. 
He said, read each one and tell me what you agree with. No kidding. And that's how that guy became a lifelong Republican. No kidding. Maybe we should do that more when we try and convert our friends. Yeah. So the platforms are important. Unfortunately, we didn't do a platform right. in 2020. That's right. Um, because it was too much about what Trump's individual beliefs were at that moment. Yeah. And I don't think he wanted to be pinned down. Yep. Just, you know, Trumpism is what Trump thinks. Yeah. But you've got to be broader than that. You have to have a set of ideas so that if, let's say, the standard bearer uh, retires or is no longer with us or is incapacitated in some way, then what does the party stand for right. if not for just that one person? Right. And, and I, so I mean, I it's easy for me really to important. figure out why I'm a Republican if you just go back to the very first platform in 1856. I mean, it's a beautiful platform. It's what, uh, you know, it it, 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 it it incorporates the Declaration of Independence. I mean, it's part of my origin story. Yeah, uh, as long as we're going back that far. Yeah. In 1865, after Lincoln is tragically assassinated, Abraham Lincoln has in his pocket yep. the Republican yep. platform now, of 1864. See, that's how important they were once upon a time. The presidents wanted to uh, cleave to them. Is that the right word, cleave to that them? That's a perfect word. i got to take a quick break, Tevi. When we come back, we'll do uh, those whose memories we want to salute and remember uh, over the past uh, year when we lost them. Let me put in a word for one of our sponsors as we go to break. Y-Refi, if you are concerned with stock market volatility, our friends at Y-Refi have a investment in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return not correlated to the stock market. It's a portfolio where you can turn your monthly income on or off, compound it, whatever you choose. There's no loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. It's a portfolio where you'll know what each monthly statement will look like. No surprises. You're paid monthly. There are no fees. It's a secure collateralized portfolio that delivers an up to 10.25% return. That's 10.25%. You can check them out at investyrefi.com. That's the word invest, the letter Y, and then refy.com. Or call them at 888-YREFI-34. 888-YREFI-34. Great guys. Work and uh, live here locally. You can meet and talk with them. You won't get a sales pitch. They leave that to Larry Elder and I. They just love talking about what they do and letting it speak for itself. Tevi Troy and I'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Dr. Tevi Troy is our guest, presidential and cultural historian, among many other things. He does an annual in memoriam essay every year over the uh, conservative bright lights whose lives uh, left us on this mortal coil, but whose memories and works live on, hopefully, and inspire on. Tevi, when I talked to you this morning, you said, man, you think about it, it was a big year of loss. We lost a lot of greats. A lot of oaks went down this year, huh? Yeah, I would say it was a bad, bad year. Very difficult, very challenging. And uh, and it started early. Yeah, uh, We had Terry Teachout died and uh, P.J. O'Rourke died just in the first two months. Boy, we so. forgot about, yeah, people have forgotten that P.J. O'Rourke passed, uh, passed on. I would say probably more young conservatives uh, I have run into over whatever my years are in this movement, 25 years or so cited him as their favorite author than anyone else, more than Buckley, more than anyone else. Probably they cited P.J. Orbork. Yeah, I can totally see that. But also, it's not just conservatives, because he was able to write for Rolling Stone magazine. And, right. you know, we talk about books of the year. I read Jan Wenner, who's the, the um, editor and publisher of Rolling Stone magazine. Was <laughs> so we very, didn't have to. Very, <laughs> so we point. didn't have read, to. Yeah, okay. Right, I read his memoir this year, and he was always talking about how he was putting his finger on the scale to make the magazine more left-wing. Yeah. And he even says at one point they had this cover that would have been 
great, a great cover, but he said it would have been too harsh on Clinton, and he didn't want to do anything that was so critical of Clinton. Uh-huh. So he made the magazine a very liberal magazine, but P.J. O'Rourke regularly wrote for Rolling Stone magazine. It's yeah. a way to hear a conservative voice, even in that sea of liberalism. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And what was his biggest book? Was it Parliament of Horrors? Probably. Probably. Oh, yeah, terrific yeah. book about why— well, Eat the Rich, was, was I know, was very popular, too. I think the Parliament, and look, the, the story I tell um, in, in the piece that's going to be up tomorrow uh, at the Washington Examiner is about from Parliament of Horrors, which has this unbelievable story at the beginning where Andrew Ferguson, who is a very close friend of PJ's, and PJ are in a car and they are driving by this left-wing protest and everybody's screaming and jumping up and down. And, and PJ asks Ferguson, why is it whenever the left is upset, they all come out and they start banging the drums and they have these big protests and they take over downtowns? And when conservatives are upset, you see two yaffers, Young America's Freedom people, standing there with flags. Yeah. And Ferguson <laughs> said, without a beat, we have jobs. Yeah. That's, it's that's, just brilliant right. and funny and so perfect, and it really sums it up. Yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a volume of, of wisdom in that. Um, PJ, I sometimes, I, I sometimes on this show will write, will quote an essay of PJ O'Rourke's. I think it was in Eat the Rich about the fall of the Berlin Wall. It's about the best description of it I have ever read or seen, and I commend it to the audience. Uh, and maybe, maybe we can read it again in his honor tomorrow or something like that. Uh, there's a bunch of others here. I, th- this one, Tevi's an interesting one. Conservative, maybe in the sense of the kind of household you grew up in, the historian David McCullough. Yeah, so McCullough was not an identifiable conservative. I don't know that he read National Review, but he wrote books that celebrated America. Yeah, And this gets back to their Hollywood conversation. Those four movies we talked about that were good movies this year, they all had in common, none of them dumped on the West or dumped on America or dumped on our institutions. And so by celebrating America, by celebrating presidents, by celebrating great accomplishments, he really, his history had a conservative impact, even if I wouldn't put him around the table with William F. Buckley necessarily. Yeah, but I could see William F. Buckley and he enjoying each other's company and having great conversation. Isn't it an odd sign of the times that to write American history, straight good American history puts you in one political camp? And it happens to be conservative in this case. That's an odd sign of the times, isn't it? I mean, I don't disagree uh, with you. It is I, I the times. Say, but... Of the times, it wasn't always true. Right. I mean, Arthur, Arthur Schlesinger was you know, certainly a solid historian. I'm obviously leading left. Daniel Borston. These were all FDR liberals. Even Henry Cominger was a great right. historian who was probably as progressive as, as Henry Wallace. Right. So you have had, had good historians in the past who are not. Uh, who don't let their liberalism infect their history. But now, if you're a historian who studies American institutions in a praiseworthy way or just studies the presidency, you're, you're effectively conservative in some yep. way. Yep. Uh, I never knew P.G. O'Rourke. I interviewed McCullough a couple of times. Someone I knew pretty well for a while, huge loss, Midge Dector. Talk to us uh, about that. You knew her, too. Yeah. Midge Dector was the wife of Norman Podhoritz, the mother of John Podhoritz, who's the editor of Commentary, a terrific magazine. But she also uh, was a writer for Commentary. She wrote dozens of pieces for Commentary over the course of her life. She wrote multiple terrific books. And she also was an organization starter. She was more involved politically than, uh, than her husband or son in that she started this organization, Coalition for a Democratic Majority, which when they saw the Democratic Party going too far to the left, they tried to act as a corrective. 
And they brought together all these people who eventually would become the neoconservatives, Ben Wattenberg, whom I mentioned earlier, Elliot Abrams. They didn't get the Democrats to change, but they brought all this intellectual talent to the Republican Party because they recognized the, the Democrats were too far gone. Mm-hmm. And so that was an important organization. And then she also started the Committee for the Free World, which was designed to push against the Soviet Union and try and uh, rally the forces of freedom together, something we might need today because of there, there are so many autocracies out there that are, are challenging and are rivals to the U.S. And so within a decade of starting that organization, the Soviet Union fell, and the Berlin Wall, which you mentioned earlier, collapsed. And I'm not saying she made it happen, but she was part of the effort to make it happen, and she was... Um, it's a real loss. And, um, she did something interesting, too. Do you want to tell the story, or do you want me to, when the Berlin Wall fell? I'll give it to you. She closed down the Committee for the Free okay. World, which is not something you see with a lot of nonprofits or organizations or think tanks that just self-shut down. Sometimes they shut down because they run out of money. Sometimes they shut down because they lose support. Sometimes they shut down because they have divisions or splits. She but shut it down, she and she said, because we won. Huh? Huh? Right? It yeah. shut down because it accomplished its yeah. mission. Yeah, yeah. She said, we're done. <laughs> we did our yeah. job. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We probably need it again now, however, when you look around the world. Um, great idea. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we, you and I find uh, find the organizing papers. Maybe you could talk to you, well. You know the family. You could talk to the family and see if we could we could start that up again. Uh, we lost a few political actors. Uh, we lost uh, Lucianne Goldberg, of course. We lost uh, Orrin Hatch. I forgot we lost Orrin Hatch. Um, much more conservative than people gave him credit for. And I got to take a quick break but let's do it's our last segment and it's a short one um let's do let's do the music man that we lost because you you and i had had a kind of a long a long uh, what's the word fandom of this of this musician and um i think i last saw him in concert i saw him about two or three times last one was 20 15. So we'll just leave that as a tease as we go into break, and we'll come back and talk about that loss uh, with Tevi Troy when we come right back. Dr. Tevi Troy and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. We want to thank Dr. Tevi Troy for joining us this, uh, this hour, Culture and Politics in the RIPs over the last year, Tevi, uh, we only have a couple minutes left in the hour, but uh, you, you, you put Meatloaf, the musician, the singer, Meatloaf on the list of conservatives uh, we lost this year, or at least Republicans. Yeah, look, you and I, as you said, were big fans of Meatloaf, loved his music. It was terrific. It really just spoke to the soul of America. But he also was rumored to be a Republican. And I say rumored because there was an article that identified him as a Republican, and he complained later that that identification cost him multiple jobs in the entertainment industry mm-hmm. just because it just because it suggested that he was Republican. Which you know, I think it's an early manifestation of this cancel con- yeah. uh, cancel culture idiocy. Yeah. Um, but he he even said that he said on some issues he's left, and some issues to, he's to the right. Um, but he likes to think for himself, mm-hmm. and I think in these days that makes you conservative. So. Um, uh, you know, it's, I, it's kind they, of sad uh, when you see these musicians or entertainers that were part of your youth or young adulthood when they pass on. You know, um, 
something goes with it. Some some part of your life kind of goes away with it too. I, you know, you kind of realize you're just not that kid anymore. You're not that young anymore, and uh, all of them obviously being older than us. Uh, but yeah, when Meatloaf passed away, a lot of memories came back, uh, and I think it's probably true for a lot of people. His album, Bad Out of Hell, I think. For a while, it was the number one selling album in the world until something yeah, like time. Thriller. Yeah, of all time, maybe until Michael Jackson came on board or something like that. Well, Tevi, you are a uh, you are a champ, you are a mensch, you are a dear a friend and a great guest, and I thank you for spending your hour with us, sir. Great. Thank you so much. You betcha. Have a great holiday, and uh, hopefully you and I will talk before the new year. Uh, if not, uh, a happy new year as well. I'm Seth Leaps, and until tomorrow, God bless you all. Class is dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.